Well, hello, Canada and the rest of the world, and welcome once again to the Netflix podcast, the show where we review the movies available to stream on Canadian Netflix. I'm Dylan Clark Moore, and I'm here once again with my fantastic co-host, Caroline Deason. Hi, Dylan. How are you? I'm doing terrifically. I didn't ask how you were doing. I said, how are you? Oh, my God. Podcast over. (laughs) Professional relationship (laughs) dissolved. (laughs) But friendship pending (laughs) (laughs) we're off to a great start (laughs) we're both idiots (laughs) who can't speak (laughs) is there anything interesting you've been watching on netflix recently caroline oh we're already at that part okay you mean the beginning yes (laughs) (laughs) so recently on netflix i have been watching uh, the new season, or the new two Netflix season of Episodes. Yes, starring Joey Tribbiani as himself. Not Matt LeBlanc as himself, Joey <laughs> Tribbiani as himself. Well, that's kind of the joke of the show, right? Is that everybody only knows him as Joey. So right. it is Matt LeBlanc as himself, and then how he has to exist in the world as being kind of, not a one-hit wonder, but, you know, known for this phenomenon show. Right. And never topping that in it for the rest of his career. It's a really good show. I really like it. And the new season's maintaining the standard yes the, the new season's fantastic actually i think it's it's much better than anything that came before it but i forgot that there's only like nine episodes because it's a british slash american production right mm-hmm. and so they only do like you know it's amazing that there's even nine really because it's half british and so i was watching it and it got to the end and then that was the end of the series and i didn't or the season and i didn't realize and it left on a cliffhanger and now i'm really angry because it takes forever to even get these ones produced let alone get them to netflix so but yeah, it's good. There was lesbians in this one. Yay. Yeah, yay. All right. Well, the movie that we're here to talk about this week is from the year 2002. It's written and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. We're going to be talking about Punch Drunk Love. Before we get into that, I should let you know that today's episode of the Netflix podcast is brought to you in part by UnLondon's 121 Studios, London, Ontario's premier digital media hub and co-working space. Visit 121studios.ca for more information. So the ways that Netflix describes Punch Drunk Love are as follows. Let's hear them. They're not good. (laughs) (laughs) They never are, Dylan. Uh, The first one, when you hover over the title, it says, Pudding is the plan, but the rub is a phone sex scam. For a man who's an enigma, even to himself, love is a kaleidoscope. Oh my god. That is so bad. Mm -hmm. Pudding was the plan? Pudding is the plan, but the rub is a phone sex scam. But the rub... Goodness ah, me. with the rub. Hey. <laughs> what? Are you stroking yet? Are you stroking yet? <laughs> oh, okay, fine. I guess. I don't think that's on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's just bad. And I feel like the, the love is a kaleidoscope thing is them trying to kind of make reference to the animated or the yeah, yeah, colorful yeah. things in between. But that's not... Anyway, when you click on the title, the description changes to Barry, prone to spasms of rage tries to escape constant harassment. He finds his life refreshed when he meets Lena, who falls in love with him. I like part of that, because I do think it's important to highlight that, first of all, she falls in love with him. I like that. And then also, what was the thing about escaping stress? Tries to escape constant harassment. Uh, uh, Constant harassment. I really like that. I think that's important to point out. All the rest of it sucked. (laughs) The genres this movie belongs to, according to Netflix, are comedies, dark comedies, romantic comedies, and dramas and the moods that netflix assigns are quirky romantic dark 
And the one that we appreciated from Ex Machina, understated. Oh, no, not again. Understated. Oh, so this is just a catch-all term for, I don't really understand it, but <laughs> it, <laughs> I liked it a lot. I think I liked it. Yeah, it, it seemed artsy. <laughs> <laughs> the internet likes it, and right. I don't get it. Understated. Understated. Have you seen uh, Orange County? I just watched it the other night because a friend, in, it's like infinitely quotable. At the beginning, when the, the main character is he's writing a letter to his favorite author, and he is describing how terrible his high school is and like how it's a, not a good environment for an aspiring author, and he says, "I have the sneaking suspicion that my English teacher is illiterate," and then it it goes switches to the English teacher who's giving him back a paper, and he's like, "Wow, a lot of big words." <laughs> uh, it was pretty long, so got to be honest, I didn't read the whole thing, but doesn't matter because I gave you an A. And that's nice. pretty much what understated means to me. <laughs> so the reason that we are doing Punch Drunk Love is because this won the poll. That's right. It did win the poll. How much did Punch Drunk Love win by? Like 50 per- Like it was 50, I think, right? Yeah, it had 50% of the vote. And then, yeah, it was, it was, there was no question. Right, that, exactly. That this is the one that people wanted to hear. And I was kind of surprised about that because uh, though I knew this movie existed, I had never found anybody who you know this was their favorite movie or anything like that it's not it's not one of those movies that people talk about well now they're gonna <laughs> or we we gonna so you've seen this movie twice now like you'd actually right. seen it before you recommended it that's for true for the for the vote and i understand that your relationship with it has changed a bit yeah so the first time i watched this movie was recently it was just last month and on the podcast previously i've talked about my relationship with pt anderson movies um because i wrote about the master for our blog and so i've talked about how i've seen now three pt anderson movies and each one has kind of given me the same reaction where when i first watch it i am frustrated by it (laughs) (laughs) to say the least i was actually texting you the night i was watching the master and you were like a lot more you were you were defending it because i was so frustrated with it and so i'm frustrated at first this is the same thing that happened to me with with punch drunk love um, and then it it kind of gets under my skin to the point where I'm, I find myself thinking about it for days and days afterwards, and I'm like, no, I really like that. And so when I got to watch it for the podcast, I was kind of overwhelmed with how much I actually like this movie. I was very surprised to be that happy with watching a P.T. Anderson movie, and I guess it just changed that I actually really like him now. It's one of those things where, you know, the the whole idea where, like, kids will tease each other or, like, pretend that they hate each other, but they actually, you know, have crushes on each other? I sure. feel like that's my relationship with P.T. Anderson. So you're, I was pulling like, po- you're pulling his ponytail? That's and, right, exactly. Yeah. I was, like, sticking my lollipop in his hair um, because I thought I really didn't like him, and I, I actually think I... I'm pretty pretty much crazy about how he how he makes these movies that get under my skin and annoy the hell out of me. So on Letterboxd, when I first watched this, I gave it three stars. And the same with The Master, I gave them both three stars. And then I realized that I've been thinking about them, both of those movies so much that I really need to bump that up to four. And three was even generous. Like three was me being like, I don't know what it is about this movie, but I don't want to give you lower than this, but I actually do not like you. <laughs> but now I, I like them both a lot. And Punch Drunk Love is even easier. It's more accessible when it comes to the three movies that I've seen. So I've seen Magnolia, The Master, and Punch Drunk Love. And Punch Drunk Love is mercifully much shorter than the two, the other two, yes. which makes it accessible in general. Well, and this one was, was made as a kind of direct response, or at least a, it was intended as a break after the, the three-hour 
epic that was Magnolia. Oh, really? Yeah. So afterwards, Paul Thomas Anderson was basically like, okay, yeah, I'm doing another movie. It's going to be like 90 minutes and it's going to be Adam Sandler. And people were like, oh, ha, ha, ha. That's funny. And then he's like, I'm not kidding. Yeah. And then it came out. (laughs) And uh, yeah, (laughs) not to everybody's tastes. Wow. Okay, cool. Well, yeah, let's talk about it. Okay, so what was it like for you the first time? What What are these frustrations that you, you tend to have with his movies and with Punch Drunk Love in particular? I want to hear about that initial gut reaction because I've only seen it the once and I watched it quite recently. Right. So what was that like for you? And then kind of what, what has stuck with you to, to change your mind? If I had to describe um, this movie and the other Anderson movies that I've seen in one word, it would be absurd. And absurdity is a funny thing when it comes to art and and making art because it can, if not done correctly, it can come off as it could be at once pretentious and then also just missing the mark and, you know, not working at all. And my first reaction to the master was definitely one of this is pretentious. So I talked about this on my last podcast with you, the girl, the dragon tattoo, the difference between how quick fincher's scenes are and how punchy they are because of that versus the master's scenes which are i thought are are drawn out to a point past necessity where past utility past utility yeah that's a good way of, of saying it when i'm watching it it gets to a point where i'm kind of okay i get it and i kind of roll my eyes and like i said punch drunk love is much shorter And so just by virtue of being shorter, it doesn't have nearly as many of those kind of long drawn out scenes. But the opening scene of the movie, when he's in that little weird bunker thing, uh, having that talk, first of all, you need to go and read my post on our blog about the master and about parallel lines, because this opens with those parallel lines again, where it's this really neat perspective shot. And you see, you know right away that Adam Sandler is going to walk from one side, one corner of the frame to the other. And it's it's all one take and it takes him outside. And then we wait and we wait and we wait and there's a car and we wait. And then there's that kind of jump scare, right, of that collision that for some reason leads to this harmonium being foisted out of a car in front of Adam Sandler. And he's just kind of as perplexed as we are. And that whole opening scene like for that to be an opening scene of a movie can't be described as anything other than absurd and even at that point if if i had never seen an anderson movie before and i wasn't you know kind of biased against him <laughs> i would have been like this is strange but my reaction when i was watching this one was like oh of course here we go <laughs> with Fuck this, this movie, yeah. yeah with this like absurdity for the sake of being absurd and that's what i was worried that this that it would be sure and granted on my first watching, there were times where I was kind of like, you know, <laughs> absurd for the sake of being absurd, but it wasn't nearly to the level of the master. And on my second viewing, I didn't feel that at all. I was much more endeared by it. All of the absurdity I accepted as being something that, if I accept this as being something that resists explanation and resists definition, and I can just enjoy it, then I actually really enjoy the movie. You because know, at that at that point, because you already know it's coming, you're not trying to frame it upon first viewing. You're just living inside of it. Yeah, that's true. And I'm, I mean, I'm sure there's people who can watch this movie the first time around. Um, like the person who showed me this movie, I'm sure that the first time he showed or he watched this movie, he didn't have that kind of, okay, fine. What do you, you know, like try to impress me <laughs> with your absurdity. <laughs> what else you got? Exactly. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, that was my that was my anxiety at first as well. Him seeing this enormous collision and cars flipping everywhere, and him with this passive reaction to it, or like relatively passive reaction, like he doesn't run to help or anything, right? And yeah. just being like, "Is this going to be like?" It, I, it felt almost more Wes Anderson than Paul Thomas Anderson. Yeah. I was like, "This this might be bordering on twee a little bit for me." I see. So I yeah. I was a little nervous about that, and I got over it. But but yeah. I see I see where you're coming from. You're just like, "Wait, wait, what?" Because the very beginning of the movie you're expecting it to be world building right and you're not expecting it to kind of shift your psychology in this unframable way yeah there's a suspension of disbelief that is necessary for this movie and also for the master i think but that borders on magical realism but to to a to a frustrating degree because there's nothing that ever really comes out and says this is a magical movie and things are happening that shouldn't be happening but but they are, you know, all this absurdity is unrealistic. And that's where it kind of clicked for me where I was like, oh, this is so unrealistic. And, you know, why why can't this be either one or the other? You know, if you're going to go full weird magic, like tell me that it's full weird magic or just be realistic and, you know, have realistic things and have realistic characters and realistic situations. And then I thought, or it's actually super fun if you just accept that this is the type of story that he's telling. And that tension between those two things the the fact that it resists that explanation and that definition is actually what makes it so much more unique. And that's the, the, the switch that flipped in my mind mm-hmm. where I was like, oh shit, not only am I okay with these movies, I don't hate them anymore, but oh my God, this is doing something really cool and I actually love them. So we've started talking a little bit about Adam Sandler's character, Barry. And I mean, he's what, like 90% of what's on the screen at any given time. So I think that he's probably the best place to start. Sure. And he's a pretty fascinating character in terms of i mean especially his psychology i mean the the one netflix description comes out and says like prone to spasms of anger and when you hear adam sandler spasms of anger you picture happy gilmore freaking out on the golf course but this is not rage for the sake of comedy this is somebody who's drowning in noise and just has to freak out every once in a while to let the steam off and then deal with the consequences after the fact. Yeah, and I thought that it was brilliant to cast Sandler in this because that's what we're used to is seeing him freak out for the sake of laughs. And there's still there's still a dark comedy to his freakouts in this because they're, they are absurd. But I think there's something to be said about why we're laughing at specifically Adam Sandler doing it. And it makes us question all of the other roles that we've seen Sandler in. And I thought he was brilliant. I thought he was, he he did it really well. He was perfect. And I think he understood why he was asked to do it, but not to a, not to a degree that was too self-conscious. That was the grounding part for me for the movie was him going through that and how well the movie justified his anger instead of it just being a bit. Yeah. Um, Oh my God. Talk about justification. Those sisters. Yeah. Like, yeah, especially, especially that scene where he shows up at the house that everybody wants him to be there. Everybody's calling him, nagging him, affecting his work, you know, embarrassing him <laughs> without even being in the room. Uh, it, it's just, it's the sheer volume of them. If it was one sister, that would be manageable. Yeah. But you get pretty immediately this idea of this poor boy living in this house with seven sisters and they're all always on him. And to them they feel like they're doing it from a place of love. Like we see the one sister. Um, we can call her Gail the Snail. She's pretty much the exact same character. <laughs> like just toned down I feel slightly. Saying it. I'm thinking of the scene towards the end when the, or when Lena is talking to Elizabeth on the phone later 
and Lena's kind of like, yeah, you know, I thought maybe he was a bit weird. And Elizabeth, like, snaps, like, hey, he's not weird. You're weird. Like, fuck you. Yeah. And that, that weird, like, I can make fun of him because he's my uh, brother, but I'm actually going to be protective of him. Right. You do so, so these sisters have no idea what they're actually yeah. doing to him. They're just being big sisters. But because of how many of them there are, it becomes this drowning noise of people constantly calling him gay boy. And because he at a young age had that frustration built to rage and probably from you know social pressures and and things like that you know if if this had been brothers doing it to him he probably would have fought with his brothers but you know he likely wasn't going to lash out physically at his sisters so instead he lashes out physically at his environment which then translates into them now having a funny story to tell about little gay boy brother and those stories haunt him and become this shadow that follow him his entire life. And then even when he's trying to talk to a woman, he doesn't want to talk to a woman who has any experience with his sisters already because mm-hmm. he knows that that's going to continue to follow him. Yeah. And that happens at their first date. And he, he has a really hard time escaping from this rage that's built up inside of him. And they he, they do this amazing job at that party of having the, the sound fill up his head so much that he has no he has no other recourse other than to just start smashing stuff. Yeah, I really, um, I was going to say that the soundtrack really mirrors what's going on in his head. Uh, It's always reactionary to how he's dealing with everything. And I was watching this movie today with Candace, our friend from Twitter. And um, Hi, Candace. Yeah, hi, Candace. And she pointed that out too. She said that that's exactly what uh, like a, a, a panic attack feels like. It feels like this like cacophony of percussion. And I thought that was a really great observation because the soundtrack definitely stood out to me the first time I watched the movie, but it stood out to me in that kind of negative, absurd, over-the-top way. Why are you being jarring? Right, and it is jarring, oh my God. And especially that scene where Lena and Elizabeth are both at his work and Elizabeth is so insufferable. (laughs) What's all that pudding? Well, I'll be right back. What's all that pudding? <laughs> like she just asks it louder again. Like he's a dog or something, right? Like if 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 she says it enough times, then you know he'll he'll he has to answer. And that's not how you speak to a human being. That's how you speak to someone who you think is lesser than you, right? But during that whole scene, it's a it's a pretty mundane scene, other than that that annoyingness from the sister. But the music is what really makes it so jarring. And it, it, it's building and building and building just like that rage that you're talking about. Yeah, it, and that is what it is. The soundtrack, more than I've ever experienced before, is just it's what's going on inside the character's head. And I talked about this a little bit with Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, how Trent Reznor's score, when it gets super aggressive, that's when Lisbeth is freaking out, like when she takes the guy down in the subway station. And for Barry, we've got that too. And sometimes you get these these respites where, you know, instead of this, discordant calliope kind of going on inside of his head he actually has these kind of romantic swelling romantic comedy kinds of strings going on when he's finally kissing lena and things like yeah. that so famous he, famous songs too right and I, actually i think i think that's a really good observation that there's a difference between how something like girl of the dragon tattoo is scored where the soundtrack is reflective of what's happening on screen but i i do really think that this is supposed to be almost like a stand-in for a narrator here where if if we could have a movie narrated from the first person perspective this is the closest way that you could possibly do that the running monologue in barry's head is the soundtrack for this movie 
that's his relationship with the harmonium as well. Yeah, so let's talk about that weird harmonium. So the harmonium, I mean, it's a it's a thing that he finds. It's curious to him. Does it? Does he find it, or does it find him? I'm not, <laughs> not going. No, come on. I'm. I'm a stop huge... trying. To, stop trying to put it in a box. You know better. <laughs> no, you're the one putting it in a box. I'm the one taking it out of the box. <laughs> so this harmonium put you in a box and him. <laughs> But this this musical instrument comes into his life and it's immediately fascinating to him. And he's got no idea what it is. Like, he calls it a piano. And I mean, like, we all look at it and we think, like, hey, it's a tiny piano. That's cute. But it becomes this grounding tool for him that when the world is going crazy and when his head is going crazy, he just, like, pushes a couple of keys. So he's putting sound into the world, or in some cases, no sound, because the the bellows of the, the thing aren't moving but he's just pressing the key and that seems to bring him back to something the closest to a neutral level that he has. I kind of thought of it as kind of like a sound dampening thing. And when it comes to, if we're talking about the soundtrack being that overwhelming sound in his mind, it just kind of mirrored that for me where if he's, if he can control anything in his life, he wants to control the sound of this weird little piano that he puts on his desk, which I think is interesting too. Right. It's like the centerpiece of yeah. his business world yeah. as he's performing business. Yeah. <laughs> With his, the designer plungers. Very yeah. Strange. That's a weird, that's a strange thing. Yeah. I love that. that. Do you remember what they're Some called? fantastic slapstick. Uh, uh, the, the flungers. Right. Which yes. is, that's supposed to be no, like... that's, I don't, okay. So I don't think that's what they're called. I think that this is one of his, um, speech slips because he said he's he's he slips in his speech quite a few times in the movie and so i don't think they're actually called flungers i think that he misspeaks just like the time where he says hi i'm back when he actually means jack and a couple other times right see i thought that it was a uh well first of all i'm, looking, at, I'm, I'm looking it up on urban dictionary and it says a flunger is a fictitious multi-purpose device capable of undertaking virtually any household task so there is precedent for that word well, but I, th- I thought that it was like fancy plunger Right. Or like fun plunger. Right. Like that was that was part of his marketing because he seems like the kind of guy who, when he has an idea that like for him it clicks, right. he's gonna go with it. Yeah. Because is that? Do you think that this is actually his business, or yeah. is he a salesperson in this business? No. Because the first time I watched it, I thought he was a, a salesperson in this business. Other than the fact that he's got you know later on in the movie, I was like, this is weird because they all seem to be answering to him. And sure. Yeah. Um, but then this second time, uh, I noticed that when he's talking to the the phone sex operator, he says that it's his. I have my own business. Right. And it was just he lies to the phone sex operator at in, at certain instances. So I didn't know if that was him self-inflating at first. But, right. But I do think it's his own business. So, I mean, like, he has this bizarre, eccentric idea. And it's not your typical, like, hey, this is a cute idea. Like, I, I work at a cupcake factory or, like, a <laughs> cupcake bakery. Like, that sort of stereotypical thing. It's he's decided to put decorations on toilet plungers in order to market them well they're also unbreakable because you know there's so (laughs) Uh, many this must be the old one (laughs) there's so many problems that people would have with breakable plungers at any given moment and i love did you see that scene where he's when he's in his office and his business partner is in the background showing the unbreakable one and he's smacking the unbreakable one on the uh, on the desk afterwards. Oh, I didn't see that. Yeah. <laughs> and it doesn't break. So and they actually break. have an unbreakable one. Yes. Yeah. See, I thought that it was like uh, from the opening of Aladdin, where it's like, it will not break. Bring yeah, it yeah. Broke. No, so did I the first right. time. But then, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's such a such a weird concept. That and time where his chair just breaks. <laughs> Which you know, near that? the Near the end of the movie. 
<laughs> near the end of the movie i was talking about the slapstick right yeah. and how fantastic some of the slapstick is and how absurd it is and there's a part later on in the movie where and this is one of those shots that i normally wouldn't like about pt anderson is it's a it's a shot that follows uh sandler walking or barry walking across a room towards lance who is just kind of in the background sitting at his desk <laughs> and and the focus is on barry who you think is just walking across the frame and if you know anything about anderson pt anderson movies and you're thinking oh this is just one of those extra long shots of someone walking from one goddamn side of the room to the other and i have to watch it and you know there's a certain point where uh, there's not any emotion being conveyed in the shot and you're just making me watch this for no reason and as i'm so as i'm angsting about this thinking how much i hate this guy suddenly lance's chair collapses and he just falls on the ground and nothing is done of it he just he just gets back up it's just a thing that happens because sometimes in real life random absurd things like that happen well it, it, it means nothing for the whole scene it means nothing for anything except for the fact that barry just kind of is like whatever he just keeps walking well, except for the fact that barry consistently fails to react to anything that happens in that building unless it happens to him this like, is true and he's I- upset when he's when he f- you know flips yeah. over when he falls hey <laughs> you should move that someone's gonna get hurt i got hurt yeah i already got hurt but uh, <laughs> but then when the forklift drives into like the the shelving unit, right, and yeah. everything starts falling oh, I off, love and that. then there's a second disaster shot. He's so good when and he, he's just when brushing he, it off. When he goes up and knocks on the window, he's like, hey, "Are you okay? Are you good?" And he's not even looking at the wind, like out the window, when he says that. It's a fantastically framed shot, and it's perfectly acted. So good. Um, no, I was extremely impressed with Sandler generally. But yeah, I agree that, I mean, I think that that particular moment, the part with the forklift, he's distracted because of Lena and Elizabeth. So I think that's a little different. He does definitely react to when he breaks the plunger and he reacts to when he falls on the floor. Um, but him, you know, barely reacting to Lance falling. I just think it's 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 another one of these examples where things weird things just happen in these movies. And we're just kind of seeing all of the weird stuff that might happen to you in a year in one 90 minutes, <laughs> you know, like, it's a very strange. I love, I love when his chair breaks. Yeah. And I think he says chair broke <laughs> when he falls down, which is so good. Sometimes the chair just breaks. I think for me, part of what I was and am continuing to struggle with with Barry is being prone to violence is a problem. And it, it has the potential to be really problematic in his life. In my own life, I think I probably get angrier than maybe a little bit more than the average. I'm saying that I, I understand what it feels like or what it can feel like to get to a point where lashing out seems like the most appropriate response. And that has the potential to be a really big powder keg of a situation. And that makes me worry about him. But the movie kind of rewards it by then providing him with opportunities to lash out in really appropriate ways where he gets to like beat the hell out of the extortionists like take down four guys at once and really justify all of this rage that's been building up inside of him and then it's like and now enter this domestic situation and everything's going to be fine Mm. so I, i have some some anxiety about how unresolved that is especially when he's gotten to the point where he has said i believe me as a very private person i believe that i need to talk to somebody at least to know what the average human baseline is to compare myself to because I'm so introverted 
in trying to hide from all of this that I don't know if I'm normal or if I'm dangerous. I don't even know if I need help because I don't know how to compare myself to the rest of the world. So that doesn't seem like somebody who's ready to be in a relationship first. Like, I feel Mm -hmm. like he's got a lot of work that... And I'm not trying to deny people who have, like, mental health problems from having positive positive relationships. It's just... For, for him to be dealing with that and then get the fairy tale ending and pretend that there aren't still things going on. Yeah, no, and I, I get what you're saying there for sure. But I would like to point out that he's the one who asks for help. And the fact that he can recognize in himself that he needs help is huge, especially because of the fact that everyone, even, including the person that he asks um, for help, is is basically trying to undermine his need for help. When his sister comes back and is like, you asked for a shrink? Like, you know... And, and she undermines it again. He has nothing but negative voices trying to dissuade him from bettering himself around mm-hmm. him. And I, that, that description, that's what I liked about that description, because I, I like the fact that that description, the Netflix one, said that he was surrounded by this harassment. Is that what it said? I think it was harassed because I said... Tries harassed. to escape constant harassment. Yeah, exactly. Tries to escape constant harassment. And so I do think that we have to recognize that this is an outside force uh, inflicting itself on Barry. And this is his only way of dealing with it which means i think that twofold and i'm i'm not i'm not necessarily disagreeing with you because it does kind of seem that okay now he's pinned all his hopes on this person who loves him despite these problems and if that goes poorly what does that mean and what does that mean for her too she's become this savior character who I, I don't want to say that she's necessarily, in the grand scheme, she is an underdeveloped character. We don't know a lot about her, and it's kind of unfortunate. She she only exists in order to be Barry's love interest and kind of get him off of this terrible path. And that's not great for a, a woman character in any movie, for sure. Right. And I think done probably with intent, because yes. all we're supposed to see is what she means to him. Right. And that's exactly what I was going to get to, is that I can forgive it in this movie, because this movie... and. I would say also the master are are more like watching a novel than probably any movie I've ever seen. And so everything that I'm saying about Barry being the narrator applies to this too. We're just like you said, we're supposed to see her through his eyes and what she means to him. And that's why we don't get a lot of her, hardly any of her outside of that. And I think you are right to be a little worried about what happens um, going forward because clearly you can't save a person right like you can't you can't cure a person however I do think it's significant that he asks for help he's already on a trajectory where he knows that he needs something and he just needs someone to help him get that help and that's so important I really like what this movie says about mental health generally it's it puts a lot of it makes me really uncomfortable and I think that's really important to be made uncomfortable on that topic yeah I appreciated that he asked for help but then he doesn't get it like the we don't ever hear that the the dentist brother ever provides that number All no, he of does course is he, he, but he does he, he d- turns and talks to it, his wife and is like hey your brother is like yeah freaking crazy so then we don't ever see him actually take the steps all we've seen him is the one time that he's acknowledged that hey i might actually need some help he gets laughed at and he, once again the shadow of his sisters comes back to haunt him yeah of course so but that's not his fault right right but i'm saying for him his next reaction would probably be like it doesn't feel safe to even acknowledge that I need help at this point. Right. And I don't think at any point him and Lena ever, I mean, they're, they're starting this budding relationship. And the very first thing that he does when she asks him out on a date is he starts just 
riffing lies about his various neuroses. Like, I never threw a hammer. I've never done this. Like, he starts telling, disclosing all of these things about himself, but in order to get in front of them and lie about the fact that they exist. And that's at the very beginning. But then every other time that they're intimate throughout, every other time where he kisses her, he confesses something true. And so I think that that is all pointing towards the fact that this is the first person in his life that he can think that he might be able to trust. And though she is underdeveloped, the first time I watched this movie, I was like, why is she interested in this guy? I do not get it at all. I did not understand what she saw in him. I thought, you know, okay, he's not even, it's it's not like he's some super smoking hot dude. And then you're just going to be like, I don't care if he's crazy because he's super hot. Uh, but I, I actually really like that about both of the, the casting for both of them. Um, they're just really average-looking people, uh, which I think makes it much more believable in this very absurd world that, you know, that these are average-looking people. These aren't Hollywood gorgeous actors. And because of that, I think that it's important to remember that when she is falling for him, she's falling for the real him. She even 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 worse than the real him because she sees all the weirdness about him and is still endeared by it. And then she hears all of the bad things from the sisters and seems to take them with a grain of salt, which nobody else has ever really done for him, I don't think. And so the last line of the movie, when she's leaning over him and she whispers or says to him, so here we go. And I thought that that was her acknowledging that we are at the beginning of what is going to be a difficult relationship and a difficult journey for him specifically because she seems pretty well adjusted she's not she doesn't seem to be someone who is equally messed up you know in the way that maybe marla and the narrator are in fight club where they're just kind of colliding she seems to be quite steady and has found someone who she's interested in and will be there for him and so that so here we go her saying it rather than barry saying it is is significant i think and her standing over him in that kind of and cradling him from behind i think we're supposed to understand that okay barry's going to be okay from now on because he's been saved by this woman Mm -hmm. and that's that's got a problem to it as well but i'm willing to forgive it for all of the aforementioned reasons one thing that really grabbed my attention as being both critical and irrelevant to the overall story is the, the whole <laughs> okay the whole subplot of the entrapment by the sex worker right because it's this incredibly simultaneously high and low stakes thing yeah that they're dealing with because you know as we go on it's it's not like a terribly well concocted scheme like If the idea is that this whole phone sex line has been set up to find rich businessmen that they can extort, they've left a paper trail in every newspaper. You know, this this is not a scheme that's been put together by geniuses. They drive across like two states to get to him, to muscle him. To muscle him for five hundred dollars. For five hundred bucks. And how much are they getting paid? Do you remember that part? They're getting I thought paid, they were getting nothing. They're getting paid a hundred bucks for two days. They, oh, right. <laughs> and their and their expenses are all on them. Right. Yeah. Like, well that's bullshit, but they still do it they anyway. They still do it, yeah. And it it felt like the the nihilists from Big Lebowski. Have you seen Big Lebowski? Yes, yeah. Yeah. So it felt like that where it was like this thing means nothing, but it is, it's kind of like a red herring sort of thing. So but. when, what I really thought was very interesting about that group of people is how to, in order to really 
because first the the uh, phone sex operator says, well, maybe I'll call back when your girlfriend's home, right? To try and blackmail him that way. But he doesn't right. actually have a girlfriend yet. Yeah. So he doesn't care. But then later they, they bring this up twice. They're like, well, this is what happens when you're a pervert. So they try to shame him into doing it, you know, by appealing to the humiliation that most people m- m- would think that someone would have by when they call uh, a phone sex line. And I find, based on the fact that they're from Utah and they're this very closely knit family who are concerned with people who are perverts and are trying to make them pay. Are these Mormons? I mean, it could be. I don't want to put that in there if it's not there. But like you said, it's in Utah and it's in Utah for a reason. Yeah. And so all of those types of things kind of point to me saying that, well, maybe are we supposed to think about these as being religious fanatics gone, you know, wrong? And... One another reason why I I kind of like that crackpot theory is that uh, the master is very thinly veiled Scientology, not even metaphor, <laughs> overt story, right? Yeah, but to the best of my knowledge, I'm pretty sure that Anderson has never actually said, yeah, this is supposed to be Scientology, which would lead me to believe that he would be capable of making this kind of jab at Mormons and continually denying it. Is this P.D. Anderson saying that, you know, this group of people who I'm giving all of these signifiers that would evoke Mormonism in your mind um, are uh, therefore even more evil than we think because they are hypocritical. They were able to justify their behavior by saying that we're doing it to bad people. Yeah. Because they're perverts. They're the ones who are, you know, Mm -hmm. if you weren't a bad person, you wouldn't be in this situation in the first place. You deserve to be extorted. Exactly. I know when when Philip Seymour Hoffman gets back into a corner, like that's their last line of defense when the extortion hasn't worked, when the threats haven't worked. It's like, yeah, well, you're a pervert, yeah. right? But I like that though, because I, I, or the whole scene where Barry's actually calling the phone sex line is really interesting because what I thought was really funny is that if you are a phone sex operator and you're getting paid by the minute, or at you least... You don't want to try to hurry him up. You do not want to hurry. If he wants to talk to you about everything that happened that day, you let him talk for six hours, right? right? Like, And so that's, that, that is where I kind of am not sure what the actual point to this is, other than to get past that initial conversation in order to get to the more heavy-hitting extortion. Yeah, absolutely. Which, to me, would mean that the the point is not to try and get perverts to, you know, like, be perverted. It's to actually punish people who would call this sex line in the first place. Because they would ostensibly make more money if she just let them talk forever, right? They would not have to drive across two different states to beat someone up for $500 if they just did it that way in the first place. Speaking of Utah, and we've already talked about the absurdity of the thing, Adam Sandler with the phone... Or oh, when he, when he, when he, when he runs yeah. to the hospital. I love that. He has the phone all the way to Utah. All the, the way to Utah. And that's when he finally like stuffs it in the guys. And, like, you take this. Yeah. And then when he confronts uh, Hoffman and he says, I have a love in my life that makes me stronger than you can even imagine. And I love that. It's so sweet. And, and then when he was going to confront Philip Seymour Hoffman, I couldn't remember if it got really violent. And I said, I think he just yells. And then he doesn't. That conversation is all completely quiet. No, they yell on the phone. <laughs> they yell on the phone. That's true. Yeah. yeah. I loved every moment of the two of them together. And this was the power of the master for me. And I, I think the the phrase or the word I used when I was talking about the master, when you were first telling me about like, oh, this is so pretentious. And I was, I was like, no, I'm like watching that movie. I'm awestruck by the two actors and just the job that they are doing, like the, 
the the artistry and the craftsmanship of of acting that they're putting on and philip seymour hoffman is and i don't necessarily want to like jump on a bandwagon but just this incredible incredible undeniable talent that in the master and in this when you put him on the screen with people it just draws out the best of them like him and sandler together is fireworks it's so enjoyable to watch yeah it's really really good and i had never really seen anything with um seymour hoffman before the master and uh yeah i'm just blown away and incredibly saddened retroactively right about the loss of talent there because you're incredible you're entirely right that he brings out the best in the other actors that he's acting with um i mean i love joaquin phoenix but he was as good as he was in the master because of hoffman and though they didn't have a lot of screen time together you're right that adam sandler is really really good with hoffman but i really do want to keep reiterating how good sandler is like if you're listening to this movie or this podcast and you haven't seen this movie and you've been shying away from it because you didn't like adam sandler which i've heard from a lot of people give it a give it a chance because this is not this is not what you think it is or might think it is I was telling you, because I had a, after watching this movie, I had a, a similar initial reaction that you did, that it was kind of like, hey, you know, okay, it's like, yeah. Sure it, was a movie. Yeah. <laughs> like, it did things that were not things that I'm used to being right. and not not figuring out yet whether they were good or great or just different or what, like, it, yeah. it fuddles you for a while yeah. until you figure out what's going on. <laughs> so I went to Rotten Tomatoes, which is just a terrible behavior to do if you're looking for this kind of thing. And I was reading positive reviews, trying to figure out like, why has this resonated so much with so many people? And so much of the conversations that I was, or so much of the reviews that I was reading was like, Hey, look, Adam Sandler can act. And for me, that's not news. Right. Yeah, of course. Because first of all, this movie kind of broke that news to us 13 years ago. (laughs) But then also one of my favorite movies is funny people. Oh, I haven't seen the it. Judd Apatow movie that he does, where he plays kind of a, a version of himself, but in a like tragic comedy mm-hmm. kind of way, where like he's a funny guy, but he's got some deep sadness in his life. So because I'd seen that before, the kind of the novelty of Sandler being serious, serious was was lost on me. So I was like, oh, is that all that this was? Which it, I'm now excited to be having this conversation and having. Right kind of draw these other parts I out of it for he's me. He's not even serious in this movie, though. You know what I mean? Like, there's so much dark comedy in this movie. And his... <laughs> or that scene when he's, when he's running away from being mugged. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and, his, and his breath, like, you can hear him breathing yeah. hard and, and, and kind of moaning while he's breathing because he's so scared. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's it's funny, but it's always, you're always questioning why you're laughing at it because it's always really sad and, and, and dark, too. But he's not, this is not like Jim Carrey in eternal sunshine of the spotless mind right like this is not that different from what adam sandler is normally doing um like the scene where he freaks out in the bathroom and and trashes the bathroom which is very similar to the scene in the master where (laughs) joaquin phoenix trashes the bathroom in the uh prison but anyway where he where he has that he has that physical comedy of freaking out and because the the reason that adam sandler is really funny in Billy Madison or Happy Gilmore, if you think he's funny, uh, is because he's freaking out in, or sorry, is because of this physical comedy that is placed in rage. And that's why he was cast in this movie, because it's, it's, this, it's this rage, as you were pointing out. And it's still funny here, but we're laughing at it and hopefully questioning why we're laughing at it. 
And so Candace today was talking about how she feels really uncomfortable about laughing at this because clearly there's something wrong with this guy. And should we be making fun of people who have to go through things like this? And I said, I, I totally understand your anxiety about that. And I feel that way as well, except for the fact that I think that it's possible for art, and specifically this movie I think actually pulls it off, is to show us something that we shouldn't be laughing at in a way that makes us laugh at it in order to get us to question why we're laughing at it, right? And so I think that it is entirely possible that Adam Sandler is aware of this and that Peter Anderson is aware of this, that he's getting you to laugh at this guy and asking you, what is the difference between you laughing at this and you laughing at someone like Happy Gilmore freaking out? You're really just laughing at people who have issues. And where does that end? And they say the the sisters call him the, the R slur when he freaks out and breaks all of the windows again. And all of that's intentional. I mean, you, you were a camp counselor too. I, I'm sure that that was a thing that when we were when we were growing up, you could say that to people and it wasn't something that would have been called a slur. But I remember being a camp counselor and being told that every time you want to say that word, say ridiculous instead. So you have to like retrain your mind. That's that's how prevalent it was when we were kids growing up, right? That you would just say this as a synonym for stupid or for someone who... And I think it was one of those... Did you say that one of the descriptions says spastic? Prone to uh, spasms of rage. Right, to spasms of rage. And even that is is something that is not... And, and I don't mean this in a scare quote way, is something that is not politically correct to say, you know, if you, if you want to be actually inclusive uh, to people right now. But I think it is possible that this movie is getting us to laugh at this in a way that is supposed to make us question it. Just like, which is camp, because you and Josh Morrison talked about camp when you talked about the great Muppet caper. And one of the things that camp does is make you question why you're laughing at something. And I think that that's what this movie actually... Um, succeeds in doing. I don't think it's being offensive and I don't think it's being exploitative. I think it's turning that around on us and wondering why is it that this is funny when it's this dark humor, you're laughing at someone, you're laughing at these um, struggles and tragedies that this man is going through. I guess for me, I didn't find most of when he was freaking out funny. Uh, like when he kicks the glass doors or whatever. Like I was like the the tragedy supersedes the No, and that's, that's not funny then. And like especially when, afterwards when he cries, it's yeah. not funny at all. Well, when he's breaking the bathroom, I think that when it becomes funny is when he goes to try to break something and it doesn't work. And he's just kind of like impotently trying to like pry mm. the the soap thing off. Well, and then the conversation that he has with the waiter afterwards where he's <laughs> denying it. That's really funny. But it's it's funny in in a way that... I mean, it's undeniably funny, but when you start to question about why why we're laughing at this, like this is a man who is not in control of his emotions and therefore he does not want to take responsibility for these emotions. Do you know what I mean? Like once we start to deconstruct it, it's not funny anymore. But the fact that we've now looked at it at all is much more important than not looking at it. So speaking about a character who we're not entirely certain what his deal is, right? Because <laughs> we, we don't know. We... we know that he's got some type of mental health issue uh, and that's all we know and he is not aware of what it is he's aware that something might be wrong and he doesn't like it but he hasn't been diagnosed with anything and he hasn't even had anybody else to talk to about this and that leads me to think about uh something that I've a i have actually found a recurring 
I don't know if it's an influence, I don't know if it's on purpose, I don't know if it's not, but I saw a lot of similarities between this movie and Catcher, the book Catcher in the Rye by J.D. Salinger, creator of Hollywood Stars and Celebrities. What do they know? Do they know things? Let's find out. <laughs> Which is just a great program. That's a deep cut right there. I love that. <laughs> um, anyway, so uh, anytime that the word phony comes up in, in any movie ever, I immediately think of Catcher in the Rye because that is the the epithet that Holden Caulfield, the uh, narrator and protagonist of Catcher in the Rye, constantly calls everybody. So the first time that comes up in this movie, one of his sisters calls him a phony for absolutely no reason. Surprise, surprise. It's one of the times that one of the sisters calls and says, are you coming to this party? You'd think at some point they could communicate with each other, but that's the whole point is that he's constantly getting nagged and so much noise directed at him. You'd think, because this person keeps saying your sister's on line one or whatever, you'd think that he would just say, tell my sisters to fuck off and take a message, but he doesn't. Anyway, so one of uh, the sisters calls him a phony. And then later on, when he's on the first date with Lena, he talks to, or he's talking about that radio show that he really likes. And he, what he really likes about the host is that he's not a phony. So in The Catcher in the Rye, the worst thing that you can possibly be for in in Holden Caulfield's mind is a phony. And I think that that's probably true of Barry too. I, I really think that he, he's so, his emotions are so raw and he's so at the surface all the time that anything that's hiding that type of stuff is this phoniness that he disrespects, even if it's not completely as conscious as it is for Holden. Another thing which we were talking about earlier is that he's got the signature look. Uh, he's got that blue suit that people point out all the time. And that he wears constantly through the Rarely movie. in a complimentary fashion. Yeah, they're all kind of weirded out by this blue suit. And that's the same thing that happens happens to Holden. Holden has a, a signature look as well. He's got a, a red hunting cap that people uh, notice and that he wears constantly um, throughout his couple days in the book. So that's another another similarity. This, this movie only takes place over a couple of days. Um, and all of the action happens really quickly. The same happens in Catcher in the Rye. Another thing too is that Catcher in the Rye is about... A boy who is having a ton of trouble coexisting with his peers and the only way that he can think to deal with this is by taking a trip and he leaves for New York. And that's very similar to Barry. He has to get away and he keeps telling Lance, do not tell my sisters where I'm going because this is his escape. He's got to take a trip. And it's his first big trip. It's his first trip at all. He doesn't travel, right? He doesn't even bring a suitcase on that trip to to Hawaii. He's got anger issues just like Holden, exactly the same things. All of all of the mental health issues that you might point out in this movie are similar to the ones that Holden has. And he goes and he asks both of them go to someone who they trust to ask for help uh, with their mental health. And uh, both of them have that trust broken in different ways. So here, Barry, he deliberately tells his uh brother-in-law do not tell my sister that I asked you this you know you're the only person that I can come to he cries openly in front of him and then um you know this that guy goes around turns around and breaks his trust the exact same thing happens with Holden in a kind of a spoilery way that if you haven't read Catch in the Rye uh I'm not going to spoil it for you but I will spoil one thing from Catcher in the Rye um, because it was the biggest similarity that I found. And this is the fir- this is the thing that actually made me think this is very similar to Catcher in the Rye. All that other stuff was kind of like, okay, whatever. But this is almost identical. In both works, the protagonist calls a sex worker 
Um, in Catcher in the Rye, it's a, uh, a sex worker. In this movie, it's a phone sex operator. In order to have a regular, normal conversation with them and not have sex. They're not interested in the sexual part of it. They're interested in the intimacy part of it because both of them are so lonely. Um, and I thought that was really, you know, stand, that really stood out to me as being a, a similarity, especially when the sex worker is very perturbed by the fact that their client does not want to get to the sex act. And also when in Catcher in the Rye, what, what happens is the sex worker goes and uh, gets her pimp and the pimp comes and extorts Holden for the money that he was happy to pay anyway but it, it, just because of the unorthodox nature of their transaction the pimp is offended by this and he comes and he beats him up which is very similar to what happens in uh, our movie where the fact that he didn't want that to happen is a huge you know it's a tell for for the intimacy that he that Barry lacks in his life and that like we were saying, it's very strange that the sex worker wants to get to that in order to finish the transaction when she should be elongating it. Um, and yeah, and that just really stood out to me as being something that was out of the ordinary enough with all these other kind of characteristics that they share that I would not be surprised if Anderson had that in mind while he was he was writing this movie. Mm-hmm. But we should talk about my favorite scene in the movie. I have two favorite scenes in this movie, actually. Can you guess what they are? Just pause for one second so just hearing you talk about the the interaction Sorry, with, this, yeah, with the, the phone sex worker um i'm just now realizing that parallel between his relationship with the dentist brother-in-law and with the phone sex worker because in both cases he explicitly says i am asking you to not tell anybody and he's very reluctant to when he's calling the phone sex line he's like i don't want to give you my social security number do i have to give you my real name do i have to give you this and that like he's trying to put up as many barriers as possible, barriers, um, to protect himself. And these people are saying, yes, you can trust me. And then he's constantly disappointed by people just proving to be untrustworthy. Yeah, no, he's not only disappointed, he's traumatized, right? Like this is a, this is, if, if you have this lack of, if you, if your trust is constantly broken over and over again, you know, through gaslighting and through just straight up terrible treatment, uh, you are going to have PTSD from this. You are not going to be able to trust people. And that's what makes it so significant, I think, that every time that he has that intimate connection with Lena, which are always such sweet, wonderful, intimate connections where she's always, he's kind of in his ar- in her arms lower than she is and she's, um, you know, holding him and rubbing the back of his head or something. He confesses something to her. And I think that's really significant because he finally feels that he's, found someone that he can trust and she doesn't break his trust which is also significant Mm -hmm. and i think that that's maybe kind of underscored where at the end of the movie or near the end of the movie um he comes to to her apartment and says i'm sorry that i left the hospital and i remember as i was watching it i said who the fuck cares like you were there you brought her there like people have to do things (laughs) you know what i mean like if if someone had to leave the hospital i wouldn't be like that angry at them afterwards right like this is you might be mad if they kind of slunk off like homer backing into the bushes (laughs) but that's not what because she but she doesn't know that that's you know she doesn't know how that how it happened she just says is that man in the blue suit you know like she's she's kind of out of it at that point so um but anyway i think that the reason that she is so angry is to kind of like convey this first i really like how that's shot i like how this is this really intimate monologue um this very uh bare monologue that um sandler has 
to kind of confess to her the the extent to his feelings for her and we don't even get to see him deliver it we see her reactions you know it's blocked where we're seeing him from the back and we're watching her reaction and we watch her kind of have this yeah okay whatever um sure try try to tell me i i already know the answer blah 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 to her melting into kind of okay fine i forgive you and then that's where they embrace and he confesses something else to her so you said that you wanted me to try to uh, to guess your two favorite scenes. Yeah, what are my two favorite scenes? Okay, so the one... Based on everything you know about me. Based on everything you know that I know about you. Yeah. I've got to think that the one is when they get together in Hawaii and they're in bed together and they're just <laughs> saying the most like outlandish <laughs> things like I want to scoop out your eyeballs and, <laughs> and having this really like morbid, loving conversation with each other. Yes. Describing what they want to do to each other's faces. Yes like eat his face like chew on his face right and then his response is to say um your face is so pretty i just want to hit it with a sledgehammer and and i love that uh, but then he responds with okay this is funny this yeah is nice. no i love that. Yeah. that that's my favorite part is when he's like because <laughs> and the delivery of that line is fantastic that whole scene is just the best and i love it um and it i mean it also kind of you know he wants to smash her face with a sledgehammer but we're we're not worried about her (laughs) right like this is the thing where he's already smashed something with a hammer this is the story that's followed him around his whole life um and uh this this intimacy that they can share is not one that makes us think oh crap like she's now in bed with a sociopath or anything like that (laughs) right they've they've found they've found in in each other they found someone where they can be so comfortable with each other that they can say stuff like that which is not it's not as if they these are actual fantasies that they're going to act out on each other to death (laughs) (laughs) you know they're not trying to kill each other or anything like that but that the fact that this is under the surface of each of them and now they have a healthy way of expressing it to you to of expressing it at all and the way to express it is by expressing it to each other so then the other one is it him running through the grocery store giddily buying up all the pudding that he can find (laughs) that is a really nice scene i only actually kind of noticed it this time where he does that little dance and uh lance is like side-eyeing him the whole time it's the first time we see him passionate about anything like Mm -hmm. even when he's running his own business when he's pitching to these prospective clients he's just going through the motions but for this he loves it no okay so my favorite scene and i'm hoping that this might be the same one as yours is when he calls lena in Oh, that's such a good scene. From the phone box. uh, Yes. Where he's just found out where she is. And I love it so much because he's calling her and and she's like, hey, we should meet up. And he's like, yeah, okay. So how are you feeling? What have you eaten today? Like he just, he cannot wait to engage her in even the most inane small talk. He's just so excited about being near her. But he doesn't actually, it's not small talk. What he's saying is, uh, he says, do you have a boyfriend? And then uh, when was the last time you had a boyfriend? And uh, and then he says, were you ever married? And then she's like, okay, well, can we get together and talk about this? Do you, do you want to get together and we'll talk about this? And she, he says, yeah, sure. Where are you from originally? <laughs> so, and the thing is that he realizes that he's kind of fallen for this person and he doesn't actually know anything about them. Uh-huh. And the reason that he asks about the boyfriend is because the first room that he called, a man answered. And 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 his gut reaction, the, the thing that rose, you know, when his heart rose to his throat, it was... Has my my trust been broken again? Oh. Yeah. Did you not get that? 
No, I didn't. Think <laughs> I thought it was just a funny gag. It, I mean, it is funny, and that's and that's another reason that we have to think about why are these things funny? That yeah. everything and the the ridiculousness of that scene, right? Because this big parade is going on next to him, and another another little bit of the subtle magic realism is when he finally connects with her on the phone, and the the light turns on in the telephone booth. So he's he's called the wrong number, right? right. It was so first he calls the the front desk of the the hotel connects him to the wrong number he goes back to the hotel uh front desk and he says there shouldn't be a man in the room that i'm trying to get to (laughs) and then so she says okay hold please and connects him through and when lena answers the phone the light in the the telephone booth goes on which is and 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 the music changes right and this is this bit of magical realism again where this is not normal (laughs) right like this is all of these amazing coincidences that happen are supposed to show you again like Anderson is doing something specific with film. He's not just telling a story uh, and and the, a story that would have been the same regardless of which medium it was in. He's using film specifically to heighten your experience of the story, mm-hmm. which was the exact same thing that I hated about him <laughs> to begin with. And now I love. And that's a fantastic scene. But that was not the scene I was talking about. I'm just now realizing the uh, what the phone is when he when he runs off with the phone to the hospital. It's because the phone, which is the symbol of his extortion and and his only line of communication with these people. And also the very first scene, he's on the phone. Right? right, but specifically the reason he's holding it is because he remembers, I have responsibilities and I need to go take care of them, but he has this unfinished business. Hmm. And he doesn't let go of the phone until he deals with the extortionist and he can get that <laughs> out of his life. So he has this as like a burden in his hand that he's like, I'm not letting go. into. It's like tying you know a string around your finger to remind you to do something. And he, he just always has this phone. Yeah, that's a good, a good way of looking at it. Yeah. Okay, so what's the other favorite scene then? Okay, come on. What did I call this movie on Letterboxd? What was my review? Okay, so your other favorite scene was the uh, the fight then, the car crash. Because, okay, the reason that the car, car crash slash where he finally directs this rage into something, which, as you alluded to earlier, is now, you know, payback. Someone is getting their just desserts, but it's still really violent and dangerous. The reason that I, I like this scene so much, other than the fact that I like violence, is that he is finally okay the, the the movements that he's doing are completely different than any of his other freakouts right you you talked about the bathroom freakout where he impotently is pulling at this one thing that he can't get off of the wall and these freakouts are 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 just you know what i said they're just freakouts this he ha- it's like a choreographed i mean it is choreographed okay. obviously because he's an actor but it's it's choreographed it, it looks choreographed. It's very fluid. It's fluid. He does like a spin at one point. <laughs> like he, he, this is all in a way that we are supposed to, I think, understand that he is now channeling this anger in a way that he hasn't ever been able to before. And the reason that he's able to now is because he's got this love in his life that gives him strength, whatever he says later on, right? right? Yeah, it's it's a more kind of pure rage. It's a It's a noble rage that he has now. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. It's, it's rage that um is not is not chaotic anymore it's it serves this purpose and i understand what you're saying about how it's another thing to stack against him when it comes to should he be getting a happy ending but i actually see it as as a positive step forward into a healing journey where he is giving these people what they deserve and he seems to be doing it in such a cognizant way that i think that the crazy erratic 
days of his rage are over. He now understands how he can channel this into something productive and positive. Because it is positive. It, I mean, these people deserve it. Yeah, it's like he's finally found his place. It's very cool. Mm-hmm. Okay, I think that's going to be a good place to start wrapping this up. So as always, I want to invite you to give me your star rating. So this is your the rating that you're giving this movie in your own Netflix profile. So one star means you hated it. Two stars means didn't like it. Three stars liked it. Four stars really liked it. And five stars means you loved it. As well, I want to invite you to share with me your MVP. So whoever you thought really uh, brought this up a notch. So yeah, what do you got? Okay, so the first time that I watched this movie, I gave it three stars. And uh, then a couple, you know, a few days later, uh, as I said, I changed it to four stars. And today, after I watched it, I was itching my finger over the uh, fifth star there. I almost changed it to five stars, and I might in the coming days, um, or maybe the next time I watch it or something. This is definitely a a, a borderline four, four, four and a half, five for me. I, I just really love it. I love everything about it. And it's grown on me, which I think al- almost means more to me. The fact that it's grown on me has more of an effect, I think, than just something that I received passively and liked and never want to deal with again. The fact that it was under my skin and that I have so much to think about and I gained so much on a rewatch, uh, to me, means it's worthy of uh, of quite a few stars anyway. So is that one that's going to be like four stars on Letterboxd, but secretly five stars on Netflix? Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I do do that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and also, I tend to give... I tend to say things on the podcast and then whatever my star rating is on the podcast is not necessarily my letterbox star rating <laughs> because my letterbox star ratings are different than what are, you know, four stars. You really liked it. Yeah, it's not the same criteria. Because no. I feel like with Netflix in one that it doesn't give you the option for half stars. Yeah. And you know that it's curating content for you right. based on what you put. Exactly. You, know, you sometimes think more about it and then on the other side if i'm publishing something and putting it on like a social profile yeah like i'm more likely to be like what would i want people to think yeah. that that i had to say about well this? that's exactly like my five stars on letterboxd show things like the godfather and then also the 1990 teenage mutant ninja turtles movie because <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty much everything you need to know about me is that both of those movies are five stars in my books right on who's your mvp adam sandler is definitely my mvp um i the ensemble cast all of them are really good uh they all they all do exactly what they need to do gail the snail is so fucking annoying and i wanted to salt her so badly (laughs) during the entire movie and i also couldn't stop hearing uh her saying i'm giving frank a handy under the table uh a friend of mine on twitter when i said i i posted we're watching we're watching punch drunk love and then i posted a picture of gail the snail (laughs) (laughs) and a friend of mine on twitter said does she mash adam sandler's dick because that's that that's that scene that i could couldn't stop hearing her say is i'm giving frank a handy under the table and frank says she's just kind of mashing it (laughs) and then so i replied to my friend i was like metaphorically she is kind of constantly mashing adam sandler's (laughs) dick because she's always you know cutting him down and stifling any opportunity that he has and so you know it's a metaphor for dick mashing (laughs) but thinking that she's helping exactly thinking that she's giving him a handy under the table (laughs) this is gold the the new podcast is it's always sunny in philadelphia is every movie okay who's your mvp and what's your star rating yeah um so before we started talking about it and uh, 
like I, I watched this movie yesterday, so it hasn't had a ton of time to percolate. Originally, I gave this movie three stars. I think my trajectory is quite similar to yours. And then after having a bit of time, and greatly because of this conversation, and you know when when we were talking and I was looking at lists of of quotes in the movie and half of these just putting a big smile on my face and oh really and going over these scenes and everything I realized that it did have its hooks are in deeper than oh, I realized good. so so that is getting bumped up to a four star rating when yes. we're, when we're done here that's awesome that's that that's that's what these movies do man I don't know and my MVP is uh, kind of unfairly but <laughs> Philip Seymour Hoffman right. For the reason that I mentioned before, that it's just t- to see him in things now is it has this extra pang of like, oh, man, like, yeah, ah, but still that doesn't it's not over inflating what he did in this role and what he does in the roles that he plays. So, yeah, I just felt like he. No, it's I, I agree completely. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's going to be everything for this week from the Netflix podcast. Thank you once again, Caroline, for being on and for continuing to do what you do, provide the insights that you insight. Thank you for having me. So listeners at home, if you liked what you heard today, head on over to netflixblog.wordpress.com to check out the rest of our content, like show notes, articles, and reviews. You can also find us on our various social media platforms. We are on Facebook as Netflix, Twitter at Netflix Pod, where you can find me at Dylan Clark Moore. And you can find me on Twitter and keep talking to me about P.T. Anderson or Wes Anderson or Gail the Snail or, or Gail the Snail. Yeah, you can. Yeah, you can. You can show me some some gifs of Gail the Snail <laughs> uh, on Twitter. I'm uh, at D.I.E.Z.Y.N. And we're on Tumblr and SoundCloud as Netflix Podcast. Carolyn and I also both have letterboxed accounts. These are online media diaries where we talk about and rate the movies that we're watching, whether on Netflix or otherwise. I'm on there as Dylan Clark Moore. And I'm at D-I-E-Z-Y-N on there as well. And I really do encourage you to check out Letterboxd. It's super fun if you like movies. Um, or if you like lists. Oh, or, I love lists. Yeah, if you like lists. Yeah, exactly. And if you like both, then it's total boner. And I think you should check it out. And, and, and it's also a really nice thing as a companion to our podcast, I think. Right. And, and our blog. Yeah. And it's also the only place where you can see a list, uh, a comprehensive list of all of the upcoming movies that we're going to be talking about. So as soon as a guest picks what they want to talk about, it goes up on there and uh, and you can see what to look forward to. If you'd like to support the show, uh, there are a few ways that you can do so. One is by heading over to iTunes or whichever podcast platform you prefer and subscribing so that each week's episode comes straight to you. It also helps if you drop a rating or a review to let us know what you think. Not only does it provide us feedback directly about what you like, maybe what you don't, but it, uh, it also helps us get boosted in the rankings. If you want to send something to us directly, maybe not on social media, you can email us at netflixpodcast at gmail.com. You can also contribute directly to the project by way of our Patreon campaign. Whether it's for the rewards or if you just like to see us keep doing what we're doing, you can pledge your support over at patreon.com. Or you can also just hit the support link in the banner at the top of the Netflix blog. The Netflix podcast is produced and edited by me, Dylan Clark Moore, and the theme music was provided by Zach Moore. Thank you very sincerely and ever so much for checking out this week's episode of the Netflix podcast. And be sure to join me here next week for a whole new conversation about a whole new movie from the Netflix catalog. Because even if you think you've seen it all, you ain't streamed nothing yet.
do this podcast. Okay. Um, <clears throat> yes, I have been. <laughs> <laughs> did that? Did that get you in the nuts? <laughs> I don't appreciate that. That was your like ultimate goal, though. That's not what I. I was just. I was concerned. 